0: I mean and this is one of the things that you don't really have the opportunity to do in training is you don't really get to know the patients over a long period of time and epilepsy is a chronic disease um so the patients you'll see you see a snapshot when they come into the ward you know and you just sort of you don't really see them outside what they're actually doing what they're that they have they that they can have a very good quality of life you just see the admit the recurrent admissions which isn't a refraction of... of, It's not the person. No, it's not the person, exactly. Mm.
1: Sometimes you need an expert. This is Dr Ella Ake, Consultant Neurologist and Epilepsy Specialist. After medical school in Manchester, she trained in the northeast of England and Nottingham before completing a fellowship in the Cleveland Clinic in the USA. Her interests are in dietary and surgical management of epilepsy and obstetric epilepsy. I'm Lou Wiblin, Consultant Neurologist at James Cook in Middlesbrough, and today's topic is Epilepsy, when the going gets tough. Great to have Dr. Ake today, and she's going to talk to us about epilepsy and more specifically when the going gets tough or when epilepsy gets complex. Um, first of all, uh, what would you like me to call you, Dr. Ake?
0: I think we've probably known each other well enough, please call me Ella.
1: Great, you can call me Lou. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so let's, let's start simply. So, um, why, why epilepsy? Why did you choose to do epilepsies? your specialist interest in neurology?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. I suppose, um, I was i actually really disliked epilepsy when I first started as a reg. Um, I thought why on earth would anyone want to do epilepsy as their specialist interest? Um, I used to think it was, you were determining, is it a seizure? Is it not a seizure? And then if it's a seizure, you give medications and then that's it. Um, but I actually had a really, um, really inspirational like mentor when I was training in Nottingham and I did his clinics sort with of, sort of really complex stuff. And I think, really that was what sort of led me to become interested in it and then once you start getting interested in something you start reading about it you get more comfortable with it and you kind of you see beyond the sort of surface that it may be and my perception obviously when I was more junior wasn't quite how it's turned out to be.
1: So if a trainee said to you now oh epilepsy it's just is it a seizure is it is it not give them medication if it is what how would you respond to that? Well, I, I mean,
0: I, I would empathise because that was that was how I used to think. Um, so, what, so what the if a trainee said that? I would empathise with them because that is kind of how I used to think. Um, I would, I think you really need to, you need to practice it. You need to, you know, what you see as a registrar is the kind of tip of the iceberg of either horribly complicated patients where you're like, I have no idea they're on every drug and they're still coming in. So frequent admissions, ITU admissions.
1: admissions, Yeah, exactly. Or you're
0: seeing non-epileptic attack disorder, but in its extreme, Um, you don't, so I think you really need to learn from the outpatient setting, particularly for the kind of more complex patients, because uh, that's something I, I don't think I really got a handle on until I did these more complex epileptic clinics with the person who, became my mentor um so for example things like epilepsy surgery um pregnancy epilepsy these are things that i hadn't really had much exposure to um until i really actively started to try and what before i actively became interested in it and was kind of pursuing pursuing that so i think it's quite easy because you sort of because you do so much epilepsy as a bread and butter of general neurology you you see quite a it can feel like it's the same Whereas when you're doing much more 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 complicated stuff that 's when it is, is int- i mean, it, it, it's interesting and there's other things that you can add you can add a huge amount to somebody 's care um, even when you might not necessarily think it in these sort of more complicated patients
1: well, I guess at the risk of being provocative or exposing myself um, we have a handful of drugs don 't we that we 're comfortable with using mm-hmm. in epilepsy, and we tend to use those drugs and then when they don't work, or they're only partially effective, well, not really sure what to do now. And then we refer them to people like you. <laughs> yes. But do do you think that the part of the um, part of your deepening of enjoyment of epilepsy as a subspecialty is because, like in movement disorder or or any other subspecialty of neurology, you, you get an opportunity to learn the patients and learn what would be helpful to them, what would make their lives better in terms of disease management. Yeah, and I think. I
0: mean, and this is one of the things that you don't really have the opportunity to do in training, is you don't really get to know the patients over a long period of time, and epilepsy is a chronic disease, Um, so the patients, you'll see, you see a snapshot when they come into the ward, you know, and you just sort of, you don't really see them outside, what they're actually doing, what they're, that they have, they, that they can have a very good quality of life, you just see the admit, the recurrent admissions, which, isn't a refraction of, of of it's not the person no it's not the person exactly mm. um you're right we all have our go to drugs and i think that's absolutely fine because you know you're comfortable with them you know how to titrate them you know the side effect profile um and you know you you get a feeling of which combinations work and and when you're not comfortable with refer refer onwards i think probably one thing i would say that probably people don't refer early enough to see, um, a, to see a, a subspecialty epilepsy consultant because, um, people sort of will try and look like numerous drugs before they think, oh, well, are there any other options available? And one of the thing, big things in sort of the epilepsy world is that surgery as a treatment for epilepsy is very underutilized. So. You get patients referred having had drug resistant epilepsy for 10, 15 years, whereas actually, you know, they should probably have been referred you know, a decade before, if not earlier. Um, so that's one thing I definitely try to encourage um, people actually is to refer at an earlier point for consideration of these additional therapies other than just medications.
1: Hmm that is interesting and i think i think we all in in the safety of our own subspecialty that there are there are always patients who say oh they should have been referred earlier Mm. we could have done Mm. you know more advanced therapies so so yeah and i think i think for some reason epilepsy there's a there's a false pride isn't there you know i should be able to sort this out and i should be able to manage this person's seizures
0: and i and i think for the vast majority of patients you will you will manage them because two-thirds of patients will go into remission with pharmacological therapy on one or two drugs it's only the drug resistant patients a third that that have drug resistant epilepsy are the ones where you need to start thinking of these these different adjuvant therapies either adjuvant surgery or curative surgery
1: and can can I ask a very basic question what would you define as drug resistant epilepsy is it one seizure a week one seizure a month
0: what Uh, I mean that's a really good question I think that actually underpins a lot of epilepsy management Um, so there's a there's a definition by the international league against epilepsy
1: which sounds like a superhero organization it just I sounds like
0: <laughs> so i don't feel like i'm a superhero though she is
1: wearing a cape
0: right <laughs> um but the, the definition is a failure of two adequately chosen uh, so appropriately chosen anti-epileptic drugs at adequate doses which you think which sounds on the face of it that's quite a low threshold for calling somebody drug resistant or treatment resistant. Um, but when you look at the study from about 20 years ago that looked at this, you can see that there's sort of an exponential reduction in the effectiveness for seizure freedom with each drug choice. So the first drug, the rate of seizure freedom is about forty five, fifty 45, 50% the second drug about 15% third drug about 5% and each subsequent drug is, just a case of diminishing returns so and I think it's really important to define that because firstly your goal changes for the patient the patient you need it's not something that the patient's going to suddenly be like oh yeah I've got drug resistant epilepsy fine they need time to come to terms with that and then you can move on to looking at the quality of life their drug burden is surgery something that's appropriate for them because I think a lot of patients will be constantly living in this hope of, of the next drug will get me seizure-free, the next drug will get me seizure-free. They go through the slow process of up-titrating and down-titrating down titrating one of the side effects. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that, but it sets a, a realistic goal.
1: Hmm. Hmm. And if you weren't an epilepsy specialist, let's cheat slightly and say, you're not an epilepsy specialist, you're a, a jobbing neurologist but knowing what you know when would you refer on for consideration of something like vns or epilepsy surgery Mm. when when would you do that
0: yeah so i think i think i once i think once you define somebody as having drug resistant epilepsy um i would then be thinking what value can you add by referring to a subspecialist mm. clinic so if a patient for example has got a generalized epilepsy say juvenile myoclonic epilepsy um but they say there's absolutely no way they would consider surgery then you know they, they probably haven't psychologically come round to that idea yet so i think it's your duty probably to sort of mention it and to say you know these are options and we can refer you on but they might say look you know i'm wanting to start a family in the next couple of years or okay i'm having seizures but they're not causing huge disruptions for my life and that's fine you know drug resistant and epilepsy doesn't mean that you have to still have to, you doesn't mean that you not every patient with drug resistant epilepsy is going to want to pursue no matter what seizure freedom hmm. um I think if somebody say has lesional epilepsy, i.e. focal epilepsy due to an underlying lesion, like a cavernoma, mesotemporal sclerosis, something like that, I think then those are the patients that I would definitely consider referring
1: at an earlier stage. Very clear target and a very clear, yeah. yeah. That's really helpful, thank you. Um, So obviously we have quite a wide range of listeners, uh, very different levels in, in medicine and I was wondering if you might be able to talk a little bit about an overview of different types of seizures and how they appear, because I, I realize we haven't really discussed that on the mm. podcast yet. So, you know, your frontal seizures, your occipital lobe seizures, temporal lobe seizures are for some reason are the, are the vanilla focal epilepsy yes. that I talked about <laughs> in medical school. And I know this because I'm doing quite a lot of um, medical school prep at the moment. And it's all about temporal lobe seizures. And generalized epilepsy and very little about any of the others so i think it'd be really nice especially to get your sort of nuanced view of how Mm. these different types of seizures appear and things that can trick you or mislead you
0: Mm. no that's a great question and i think um i think why you learn so much about temporal over epilepsy in medical school is because it's the most common focal epilepsy so i think at a very basic level you need to define epilepsy as either generalized onset Seizure or a focal onset seizure, and within those you get different seizure types. So, in generalized epilepsies, the kind of um, uh, typical syndrome people think about in adults would be juvenile myoclonic mm. epilepsy. In children, you'd be thinking of childhood absence epilepsy, and the seizure sort of the common seizure types that you'll get are absences, um, myoclonus, or generalized tonic-clonic seizures. Now absence is a, is probably a very, um, used and abused, overused, (laughs) um, term. Um, it kind of is what it says on the tin. They, the patient looks absent. It's very brief seconds to the point where they can be so subtle that you would miss it unless you were looking, which is why they can often be left on not, people don't really notice them. And it can be things like the child falling behind in school that makes Alerts parents and teachers to so something's not quite right. Um,
1: I've um, I've had quite a few patients who turned out to have absent seizures, and um, it was suspected that they had hearing problems. And I, I found that was quite a common. Right. Okay. Yeah. Investigated for hearing difficulties.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, and you can understand why, because like they're so brief. By the time you look, it's gone. Mm. I remember sitting in a in a when I was a medical student sitting in a pediatric clinic, and there was a little girl who must have been about five, playing, and she had childhood absence epilepsy and the parents were saying, Oh, she's still having them really frequently. I was thinking, Oh, she's not having anything. And then the family went out and the paediatric neurologist was like, gosh, she, she was, did you see all those absences she has? I was sort of, no, I didn't see them <laughs> at all. Oh no, that's not a good start. <laughs> Careers to strike off Yeah. neurologist. <laughs> Specifically epilepsy. <laughs> um, so yeah, so if they can be really subtle I, and, and sometimes, because they're so brief you know, you know we all don't we all stop paying attention at times um you know how to you know that's not an absence so you, you can understand mm-hmm. why they're not really or, you know particularly if it's more maybe more mild so i think that's so that's one type of generalized seizure obviously generalized tonic chronic seizures um another type and then myoclonus and the myoclonus is everyone most people experience myoclonus in the form of hypnic jerks when you're falling asleep and your leg jerks out um, but myoclonus with epilepsy with generalized epilepsies tends typically for example in juvenile myoclonic epilepsy will be very um very typically when somebody's sleep deprived or first sort of 30 minutes of waking so i would ask the patient you know when you shower in the morning do you ever drop something just drop shampoo drop the soap or when you're eating a your breakfast do you ever drop the spoon or spill your, your 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 um cereal whatever you're eating um so that's kind of so that's how i how, how um you would know that it's not just
1: it's one it's one of the few useful sort of colloquialisms that i learned in medical school messy breakfast epilepsy because On a handful of times that I've picked it up, the patient will immediately, and everyone in the room, just sort of, "Oh God, yes!" Yeah. And 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 if if it's not the case, they just look at you like you're slightly more slightly mad, or more mad than they thought before. But yeah, the the recognition. Say, do you have a messy breakfast? And everyone in the room is, "Oh my God, yes!" It's really, it's 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 brilliant. Yeah. And I think
0: often the person will have had the myoclonus in, in juvenile myoclonic epilepsy will the myoclonus will often precede for a, a lot of patients the development of the generalised tonic-clonic seizures which is when they actually go and seek medical attention and sometimes they, they might volunteer in clinic when you're seeing them but then you, some, but, but for patients i will always ask if in a first seizure clinic for example have you experienced anything like going blank and not you know, missing bits of conversation or suddenly dropping something first thing in the morning or when you're sleep deprived and surprising actually when you ask for it there's you know there have been a number of occasions where actually they've had quite prominent myoclonus and they just thought that, that was normal um because i suppose why wouldn't you
1: yeah, it's always, it's always <laughs> happened
0: yeah um so that's that sort of generalized epilepsy um and then with with focal epilepsy which i think is important to recognize that's more what you're going to pick up de novo in adults so there's, there's about 60 percent of adults have focal epilepsy about 40 percent of adults have generalized epilepsy with focal epilepsy by far and away the most common type of focal epilepsy is temporal lobe onset epilepsy so temporal lobe seizures which is why you know that's why you learn about it in medical school because mm. chances are it's going to be temporal lobe epilepsy if, if you have somebody with vocal epilepsy it's probably about 70 percent of focal epilepsies followed by frontal lobe and then parietal occipital lobes lobe epilepsies are quite poorly defined in terms of their um their frequency because they're quite difficult to pick up and they can ma- a particularly parietal onset can sort of mask as other um like temporal lobe onset or frontal lobe onset seizures i suppose i would really mainly concentrate really on temporal lobe epilepsy and frontal lobe epilepsy the temporal lobe epilepsy you get if it's from the medial structures. So your limbic system, um, hippocampus, anterior temporal lobe, you get the typical deja vu butterflies rising feeling in your stomach, and then that may then progress on to sort of loss of awareness. And sometimes a patient will experience automatisms, i.e. semi-purposeful movements that are kind of semi-automatic, like fiddling or something in their hands or in their, um, mouth and tongue. And then. The pattern of temporal lobe epilepsy is such that they have a lot of these smaller focal seizures and then relatively infrequent generalized tonic clonic seizures. So, again, in the first seizure clinic, you might pick up somebody who's presented with their first generalized tonic clonic seizure, but for several years prior, they've experienced these odd sensations that can be quite hard for them to describe and again I've had people say I just sort of thought it was normal and everyone and, they, and most people experience deja vu so you can sort of understand well why they might think
1: that. I once had an author who described so he had temporal lobe seizures, and he described his the, the sensation of having a temporal seizure as ineffable or indescribable <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which I thought was quite brilliant um, and I think a lot of people not all of us are authors or professors of literature and i think quite a lot of the time what people are trying to describe to us is an indescribable yeah, feeling yeah. yeah
0: and i think as well sometimes people haven't gone to sometimes people think there's something wrong but they they think it's so bizarre because it's just a sensation there and and, they're, 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 and i've had a few people say i just didn't go because it sounded so mad that yeah. people would just think that i yeah, i had some sort of psychiatric illness and and actually and then when you say, Oh no, I've heard this literally hundreds of times, uh, they're 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 really relieved because they're sort of like, Oh, okay, oh, is that what it is? <laughs> um so yeah, so that's kind of with temporal lobe onset seizures. Frontal lobe seizures, there's a I mean, there's a huge range. What you typically learn is that they're very brief, so brief onset, uh sorry, very, very brief and with a quick onset, quick offset, maybe 10, 20 seconds recovery is very quick to the point where you think this isn't a seizure. This is they're not postictal at all or for a few seconds. Again, you typically learn that they're hyperkinetic. So sort of more proximal muscles move. So your axis, your proximal arms, proximal legs. So you might get bicycling movements or all um, or kind of flailing limbs. Sometimes I've heard people describe or like they're punching out. Um,
1: a lot of what is described in some older textbooks is what non-epileptic attacks exactly, are like. Yeah.
0: Exactly. And that's why it's so difficult. And the more that you see, the less certain
1: <laughs> you are. That's, that's the
0: problem. Oh, no. um, I, 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 I mean, I saw a patient who'd been under services for a few years who had a description of a seizure where uh, she wasn't aware of it. The partner said she collapses falls to the floor and then is punching out and then trying to bite and scratch other people and then crying and just a completely bizarre kind of description. And she you been seen by, um, someone else in the past, and it's thought, well, this sounds probably sounds like an epileptic attack and epileptic attacks are very common and can commonly coexist with epilepsy. So, but you know, the, the, they'd asked, "Or can you film it? And then about two years later. I ended up seeing them for a follow-up appointment, and they'd, they and they they filmed it, so they they sent it in, and this woman's clearly having frontal lobe seizures, but you can see, and I, I said to the partner, "Is this what you mean by you know they're punching out?" And actually, she had very proximal movements, and she was had this peddling motion that you could just see just in in sight of the video that the partner had taken, and obviously home videos are very you know they're not high quality, um, so you're trying to kind of um, but but you know I mean I I, I can't imagine not having videos the mm. easy access we have to videos now compared to you know my colleagues who were practicing 20 years ago even 10 years ago so yes yeah, so I think I would I would one of the one of the key things I think when you're trying to assess is it a seizure is it not a seizure and then the type of you know if, if it's a focal epilepsy where it's coming from is you, you need to really see a number of of the seizures because um depending on how the seizure propagates they might have a few different what we call in sort of epilepsy language semiology so how it develops can be different depending on where it's spread to in the brain the onset might be the same but then the progression is different and obviously it's it's the later stages of the seizure people will pick up on and will and that they'll get videos of as well.
1: And it, I, I think again, you know, again, all the textbooks talk about auras as though it's something that precedes a seizure as opposed to being part of the seizure. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah which is particularly important and disappointing for patients when they're classed as a seizure that will stop you from driving.
1: Yeah, yeah, a, a, a difficult subject. <laughs> and a difficult conversation. <laughs> and uh, I mean, obviously, the the other forms of seizure, a lot rarer, occipital, parietal. Yeah. Um. Do you mind just giving us a, a few lines on... Yeah, so I think, so I think,
0: yeah, so parietal lobe seizures, I mean, you get a huge number of variation, uh, you know, but you would get, you often get distortions or sensory sensory um, symptoms with them at the onset as a sort of first symptom that the patient will experience. And then um, for occipital lobe seizures, typically get, um, Simple visual hallucinations, so things like colors or shapes
1: Christmas tree lights is, is always seems to be something yeah that, yeah,
0: so whereas more complex visual um, more complex visual um, sort of hallucinations are more what you see with um, temporal lobe and then sometimes parietal parietal lobe seizures
1: that 's fantastic, thank you, <laughs> so move, moving on from. know where a seizure might originate and and how it would appear um one thing that i think neurologists always slightly take fright from and seek the consolation from the arms of their epilepsy (laughs) trained brethren is 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 this picture that we're seeing does this person have an underlying syndrome producing mm-hmm. their seizures, particularly in the context, of maybe some learning disability mm-hmm. or some, some other features. Um, again, like the, the vanilla temporal lobe seizures, the one that's always mentioned is juvenile myoclonic epilepsy. Yeah. That's the one that everybody knows and feels comfortable mm-hmm. with. Obviously there's a, a huge world of other syndromes that people like you are diagnosing every day or mm-hmm. looking for. Are there particular epilepsy syndromes that generalists miss? And that we need to be aware of. What should we look out for? Yes,
0: yeah, so I think I, I, I was thinking about this because uh, you did kindly give me some of the questions. There
1: before. were no spoilers, <laughs> no spoilers at all. <laughs> so
0: I think I mean juvenile myoclonic epilepsy is obviously what you, as an adult neurologist, that's what you typify in your mind as mm. a syndromic epilepsy. Um, I think the the other the other ones that I would definitely, I think that you should know about would be. Juvenile absence epilepsy because those patients might not present until even though juvenile absence epilepsy is the onset, it's typically kind of you know 10, 12, 11, 12 of the absences. They might not actually have a generalized tonic-clonic seizure until sort of early adulthood.
1: Diagnosed it until the age of twenty-eight, which I thought was, and then it turns out they've, they've been, been having, having yeah for years.
0: Yeah, and I think the and and actually with if it's picked up in childhood, they they. Well, when it's picked up in in sort of early cha- uh, earlier sort of youth um they they usually just have absences with infrequent tonic clonic seizures whereas as they get older the tonic clonic seizures become more of a prominent feature so i've definitely picked that up in ad- in, an, in an adult and it's really and i think the key thing is is how is key thing to remember is how is making a syndromic diagnosis going to change what you do and it does change your drug your drugs of choice particularly first line drugs um So I think that would be, that'd be one. We'll put a
1: pin in that, because I'm sure.
0: We'll put a pin, yes, I'm sure we'll come back to that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then I think the other one would be, um, I leave myoclonia with absences because again, the the, the, um, eponymous name, Jeevan's syndrome, and in America they call it sunflower syndrome, because they have, uh, they're very photosensitive, um, and they have basically, Um, very frequent absences associated with eyelid flickering which is myoclonia of the eyelids the eye eye itself deviates upwards slightly we get this kind of eyelid myoclonia for you know second two seconds max well maximum and then um, and the brief absence Mm -hmm. and again they can get tonic chronic seizures in that but the the um, eyelid myoclonia and with the absence is the is just so common, and, and sometimes the patient isn't. They're aware that their eyes are flicking, and they just don't think anything of it.
1: Is this uh, am I am I remembering right? I think I may have seen this triggered by sunlight going through trees. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So, and 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 actually, for the patient themselves, because for some patients, the photosensitivity is a pleasurable experience. So, some patients, um, particularly children, not just in this, but in in, in photos in other patients who have photosensitivity, they will um actively trigger the, that for example looking at the sun and waving a mm-hmm. the hand in front of the, the face or going really close up to the tv so
1: these are behaviors to look out for in sitting yeah. in a oh, okay
0: um so and, and that's because they have there's some sort of pleasure that they derive from it or i have a woman who also does it when she gets angry and we have an argument and that sort of is her way of coping diffuses it, and diffusing yeah, yeah. so um
1: hmm that's really really
0: interesting but yeah you're right i was thinking about the original question but yeah the the light coming through trees there's different ways obviously people think of kind of strobe lights as being Mm. the typical um triggers but things like the
1: the pop culture favorite is there was a particular episode of pokemon that triggered seizures in children in japan oh so um and that episode was removed from syndicated television in, in america uh, but I think several, a good number of children were subsequently diagnosed with <laughs> epilepsy after that epilepsy. episode of Pokemon. I shall put details in the link <laughs> because it's quite an interesting story. Yeah, there you go. I've nerded that question. Yet. Shall we move on? Um, so yeah, so we 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 mentioned there. We put a pin in um, key choices of, of of drugs for certain types of seizures. Mm. Um, how do you go about? A, a a drug choice in in an outpatient clinic so in hospital it's a bit different you know we mm-hmm. have our go-to emergency boluses that we use if somebody's having a lot of seizures it's very different for somebody who's well mm-hmm. sitting in front of you in clinic and you're selecting a drug for mm-hmm. them or maybe an adjuvant drug yeah how do you go about it
0: so i think um the first thing is obviously you always need to make sure the diagnosis is correct yep. <laughs> because um you know I, I run a, a essentially a drug resistant epilepsy clinic or my you know by default probably most of my patients are drug resistance which is why they are coming back for their follow-ups so i'm always always have you know the, my first thing when i'm seeing them for the first time is is, is it epilepsy or not um are they having non-epilepsy attacks or are they having syncope um if you're if you're you know, as sure as you can be that it's epilepsy and they're not on any drug then the world is your oyster in terms of in terms of the pharmacology i think, I think what
1: we're all getting at is what is Ella's favorite <laughs> anti well and uh, is it keppra is it kephra i do yeah. like kephra
0: um but i think it depends a bit so i think if you have a patient younger patients for example they might want to have a once daily drug Um, some patients, they are on other drugs. So you want to avoid one, say enzyme inducers. Um, some people, if they've had a number of seizures in fairly quick succession, you want to start the drug quickly. So depending on those sorts of factors will depend a bit on which drug I choose first line. Um, obviously for a woman of childbearing age, that is, that is quite significant, um, there might be some differences. Generally, for most of the patients who I see, say, who've had two seizures, they probably have a focal epilepsy. I would choose Lamotrigine or levoteracetam, um, unless they were really keen to be on something once a day, in which case I'll choose Zanisamide. Um, in terms of for patients with generalised onsets, um, epilepsies or generalised onset seizures, um, it would be either levoteracetam or Sodium Valparate now there's some recent data about that basically showing that valparate probably is better than levetiracetam for the generalized tonic clonic seizures in a lot of the generalized epilepsies so for a man um you know you you would you would definitely that would be it would be very tempting to start them first line or so to evaporate having said that a lot the side effect profile isn't great mm. in terms of aesthetically weight gain bolding
1: i guess you can't get away from the fact that it, it works as a drug. but it works yeah. yes
0: No, exactly so i would so you know some some so i would counsel the man you know this is probably going to be better for you but this is a side effect profile versus levotiracetam this is a side effect profile of levotiracetam and then pretty much all the people i've We've chosen levetiracetam as first line but then I'd have a very low threshold to change them to evaporate second line if they um if they if if, if, if the trust wasn't effective for women obviously we know about the issues around sodium evaporating we're, we're in of childbearing age um so you, so levetiracetam or the motrogene um, would be my first line drugs for generalized epilepsies in women
1: and in when when would you when you're combining drugs, so we're being distracted by cats, um, very easily distracted by cats here. Um, when you're combining drugs, so I, I think from a registrar point of view particularly, you'll often see people in clinic, in an urgent clinic or a hot clinic, um, somebody with a diagnosis of epilepsy, which you're fairly confident of, they're on a single agent at maximum dose, be it your Keppra or your Lamotrigine or even your Valproate, and then you have to add in another agent. And I think at that point, we all just sort of grasp for what we're familiar with and i i think as an epilepsy specialist it would be really helpful for us to know how do you go about choosing second agents or when do you think about replacing Mm. the initial agent How how do you what's your what's your schema
0: yeah so i think um i go through a similar process as to what i do for the first line drug with the addition of looking at the drug that they're already on and probably trying to choose one that has got at least a bit of a different mechanism of action. So for example, anecdotally Lamotrigine and lecosamide, which are both sodium channel blockers patients can't usually can't tolerate up titrating um, to maximum dose of both of them because they get a uh, dizziness. Um, so kind of knowing that, knowing that I would try and choose something that works slightly differently. So, um, and again, looking at, are we, trying to you know are we trying to reduce the overall number of times a day we're taking the tablets because they're actually we you know they ultimately want to be on a once a day drug so i might then choose zonisamide um i think one of the key things is is to make sure they're compliant because sometimes you're just replacing what is a good drug for something that may be as good or maybe less effective for them not to be compliant with it unless the compliance issue is they they keep getting one of the doses of the bd dose in which case i think taking something once a day is 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 is, is much much preferable um so yeah that's kind of how i would i sort of go about it initially and then i always try there's always a temptation because we do have a lot of drugs in epilepsy there's always a temptation just to keep on adding drug after drug after drug after a certain point you know they the patient, you know, they might be seizure free or they might be near seizure free, but the the drug burden's so high, they've got cognitive side effects. They would actually, you know, they they're not seizure free to be able to drive, but they're having a seizure every six months. They might
1: be better to have a quality of life and exactly. a seizure every three Exactly. Know. Yeah. Are there certain combinations that you would actively avoid? So you've mentioned already the motrogen and the cozy Yeah,
0: so I mean I mean the I mean I think the other things I would consider would be if they've got a learning disability or not, um, in in that some of the cognitive and behavioral effects of some of the drugs, for example, parampanel um, has got quite a lot of, can cause quite a lot of behavioral problems, um, you know, and even it's kind of sister or brother drug, briracetam, they can have quite significant neuropsychiatric side effects, which are slightly higher high, high risk, of if there's an underlying um, learning disability. So there's certainly things that I would consider looking at the patient, uh, the background patient demographics. Um, yeah, does that answer that
1: question? Yeah, so. yeah, it does. <laughs> um, going more with the, I'm, I'm just sort of ramping up the difficulty. Which I say, but what if, up it up. So. So uh, in the same urgent or hot clinic, uh, you've got someone who's on, let's say, maximum dose of or, or a fairly decent dose, a sporting dose of Lamotrigine. Um, let's say they are 12 weeks pregnant. Okay, so this is the, the slight heart sink of registrars every, oh my God, they're pregnant. So how do you go about dealing with somebody in pregnancy, particularly sort of first to second trimester?
0: Yeah, so I think um, in a way when they come they're pregnant, Quite a lot of hard work that you would have had to have done as sort of been and gone because a big part of um not a big part but a, 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 a portion of what we need to consider for women of childbearing age is um the teratogenicity of their medic of their drug
1: Sorry, my cats are scrapping in the background. <laughs> yeah. And I think Emma is picking up.
0: Been distra- on that. I've been distracted. So 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 when when they're pregnant, you 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 have, you know, you can't and they're twelve weeks pregnant, they're nearly past the first trimester. So a lot of teratogenicity that you would be concerned about with drugs with antiepileptic drugs, done. that's kind of done.
1: Yeah.
0: Um so what you need to consider in pregnancy is the how the pharmacokinetics changes of the drug. So lamotrooms are like typical example of that in that as, a, as in the second and the third trimester, um, the Lamotrigine levels go down very significantly, sometimes up to 70%. Um, there's data from European um, registries and studies of pregnant women on Lamotrigine that they're more likely to have breakthrough seizures. Um, there's no evidence as to what you do about it in terms of do you, so some people are, are, will monitor the Lamotrigine levels. And then uptitrate the lamotrigine in the absence of a, of a patient becoming symptomatic of having a seizure. Some people will do it more expectant management and increase it when they, when the patients had a seizure. So I think if, I think what you need to think about is, well, what is the risk of the patient, what is the risk of the patient of them having a seizure in the first place during pregnancy? Because the vast majority of people, the epilepsy will remain the same during their pregnancy. Um, and if they've been seizure free in the year preceding um, pregnancy, they're more likely to remain seizure free, which is probably self kind of makes sense. Um, I think if they're extremely anxious about the prospect of having a seizure and if they've been seizure free for two years, um, I probably would monitor their Lamotrigine level, even though this is a completely evidence free zone um, because of it empowers the woman to -hmm. make them, they feel that, you know, there's something active being done. and in terms of the neurodevelopmental or the neurocognitive pro- um, effects on the on the baby, there's no evidence that we have, for example, for the mercury causing adverse problems, unlike certain valproate. Um, so that's what I would sort of do. In the in that in in in, in 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 you know, patient comes to me or phones up. we you just they phone up my secretary saying I'm you know, I'm this many weeks pregnant. So I would go over, you know, seizure freedom up until pregnancy how, how long they've been um if they're on monotherapy you know they're going to be at relatively um low risk in terms of their pregnancy unless they've been having lots of seizures um in the preceding year and then think about whether or not i would preemptively increase or will we just do expectant um management of the patient um i think the important thing to say in terms of breastfeeding it's encouraged you know there there isn't a huge, there isn't they there isn't evidence that um even though some of the drugs are excreted in breast milk that there are such levels in the baby that they cause problems so um the current guidance from the Royal College of Ops and Gynae is that women should be encouraged to breastfeed
1: if they wish if they wish yeah um and I'm I'm going to assume that you've seen 10 women in pregnancy (laughs) and nine of them are absolutely grand and it's all but maybe lady number 10 hitting a bit of a sticky wicket, the has been increased. Seizure frequency is still a bit uncomfortably mm-hmm. high. and There's concerns. What do you do then? So I've, I've sort of experienced, particularly as a trainee, two different schools of thought. One being, you know, let's add benzodiazepines as a sort of least bad option. Mm-hmm. But from my time in Ops and you know, benzodiazepines, particularly in the third trimester, can lead to quite a floppy baby yeah, at yeah. delivery. And then the other school of thought being, is it less damaging to add in a another agent as opposed to benzodiazepine? What's your take on that? I mean, I think
0: it depends how quickly you need to get control. You haven't got much, you haven't got a huge amount of time in pregnancy to get control. So, you know, you're not, you're not going to be able to start something that is going to take you four months to titrate up to a therapeutic dose. So If I say on the motrogene, then you're probably going to be looking at adding in levotoracetam because you can start off at therapeutic dose. Um, I think it would depend on how far into the pregnancy they were, how long they've got left to delivery. If say they're 30 weeks, I would definitely add in levotoracetam. For example, if they are 37, 38 weeks, I would, I would add in the benzodiazepine. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: because you know, you know, baby
1: can have support. Yeah, exactly.
0: And I think, and it's much
1: better. You know,
0: the lot. What you don't want is, and we, well, what you want to avoid is seizures during labor, because that can cause fetal hypoxia um, and fetal bradycardia. And it's better to be on a drug that might make them more drowsy when they're born, but know that know that that's what you're doing. And therefore, you can put in place a pediatrician to check the baby over, um, and then actually having your unpredictability of having seizures and then having to do an emergency delivery via a set, 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 general anaesthetic section, for example.
1: Yeah. So I suppose at least if you've got that joint care, you can do that. advantage. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the really important things, I think, for managing women with epilepsy in pregnancy. Um, it's very well kind of recognised that there are big gaps in the service provision of, you know, over the UK as a whole. Um, when you look at the data about women who died during pregnancy, um, you know, the majority of them didn't have very joined up care. Um, and certainly a lot of them hadn't seen specialists, a specialist um, during their pregnancy and it was being managed. Um, you know, And there might have been a number of reasons that they didn't see a specialist, but um, I think having, joint clinic um is really helpful and important and also it, it also helps the obstetric team you know they know that they can ask you rather than having to you know try and find somebody to um troubleshoot with you know it, it's good to have that relationship already built
1: and that's the origin of experts isn't it you you hold the clinic and they will come yeah exactly. and that's how you become expert. exactly yeah. exactly that's i mean I, th-
0: I think we have a magic we have i have a magic potion oh, maybe well. become an expert <laughs>
1: really? i will um, i will I'll get some of that it. afterwards <laughs> <laughs> so moving away from from drugs obviously a, a huge amount of your of your practice will be the allocation choice of drugs but um, epilepsy care as you've alluded to is is beyond drugs so so vagal nerve stimulator mm. it is a mysterious Creature that sometimes only <laughs> reveals itself on a chest X-ray that you yes. did because somebody was a bit chesty. It's like, oh, they've, they've got a, they've got appliances. They've got a pacemaker, but it doesn't seem to be in their heart. <laughs> so, when when would you when would you start to work a patient up for VNS? When would you start having discussions with a patient about a VNS possibly being helpful to them?
0: So, so I look at it in in the approach of um, looking at epilepsy surgery as a whole. Um, so, what we were saying earlier on about you you need to define have they got drug resistant epilepsy and if they've got drug resistant epilepsy, VNS in theory could be suitable for anybody. Now there are some nuances to it, you know, maybe, you know, if they've got behavioural problems, they're going to be picking out the VNS. Maybe, maybe they're not suitable, but the vast majority of people actually on the face of it are suitable who've got drug resistant epilepsy. Um, I think when you're thinking about epilepsy surgery as a whole, what you have to, what you need to think of, there's, I suppose there's two main types of surgery that we do in the UK. There's resective surgery for focal epilepsy, where you remove the epileptogenic tissue. And that is going to have a much higher rate of success in terms of seizure freedom. And then there's vagal nerve stimulation, which I would think of it as another drug. And you would put it in, in order to try and. Maximise what you know. Maximise um, chances of seizure reduction, but trying to minimise their drug load. So I would sort of look at it as trying to then rationalise some of their medications.
1: And quite quite simply, so the resectional surgery, it's it's quite logical. You know, there's a, a a diseased or damaged area of the brain which is acting as an origin point for seizures. So you take it out. What's what is the underlying principle behind a vagal nerve stimulator?
0: So the so no one when you actually go you know there's lots of different theories and 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 sort of science published on it. But actually when when it boils down to it, no one really knows how it works. What what the theory is is that with with a seizure you get hypersy- hypersynchronicity of
1: try saying that without your false teeth.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, of. Of, of a brain network so we, um, we move away from the idea that um, epilepsy just arises from one part of the brain It's actually a network of connections within the brain a bit like when you have an orchestra at the beginning of the you know when you go in sit down they're kind of tinkering on their instruments sorry for anyone who plays any instruments <laughs> I,
1: I, I really like this analogy already yeah.
0: um, but then when the conductor comes which is the onset of a seizure, then he does a well-rehearsed, orchestrated...
1: A stereotype synchronized yeah. tune. That's really nice. Can it can go in
0: different directions, mm-hmm. can sound a bit different, but it's very synchronized and it's very individual to that person. So what you're trying to do with both resective surgery and with vagal nerve stimulation is disrupt that synchronicity, that hypersynchronicity. So people...
1: Disrupting the orchest... Getting rid of a conductor. Getting rid of a conductor. You can get rid
0: of the, you know, violinist, violinist, yes, violinist, but you're not going to stop the seizure. It might look a bit different, but you're still going to have it. Whereas if you get rid of a conductor, who's the sort of in epilepsy terms the epileptogenic zone, um, then you're getting rid of the, you're getting rid of a seizure or disrupting a seizure. So, um, so with vagal nerve stimulation, it obviously connects. But so, so it's a, for those who don't know. It, it looks very similar in terms of the battery to what you get with a pacemaker, and then attached to the battery is a wire that goes to the vagus nerve. Usually, we put insert it inserted on the left side, um, uh, the left vagus nerve, and then obviously the vagus nerve in turn connects into the brain. And by intermittent stimulation of the nerve, you hope to disrupt the synchronicity through the thalamus. Um, and basically, over time, the, that network that's become so synchronized becomes. Uh, less synchronised. You
1: permanently disrupt the likelihood that it will develop a synchronous output. Exactly.
0: Hmm. Or if it does develop an output, it's not as long. So, you know, so for VNS, what we would say to the patient would be, you know, it can reduce the frequency of your seizures. It could reduce, if somebody has clusters of seizures, so repetitive seizures over the course of the day, it might reduce clustering of seizures. Um, it might not reduce your seizure frequency, but it might shorten the seizures. So they're not as disabling and the recovery is quicker. There are there's there's evidence that, um, that VNS will also improve cognition because cognition is quite under recognized, but quite disabling symptom that people with epilepsy will experience of kind of memory problems and, um, not independent of the pharmacological burden. Um, and then VNS not used a huge amount but it's used in depression so again a lot about a third of patients with that have, a lot of,
1: in the states it's used quite a lot isn't
0: it i think it's, not, it's been taken over now by um transbionetic stimulation which is more non-invasive um so it's not so it is used a bit in treatment resistant depression but it's it's kind of been taken over by tms but um but yeah so so it has some non-seizure related side effects or, want, or not not side effects but non seizure related effects that can also help improve quality of life, but what I would counsel people or patients that not going to this cure. isn't going to cure your epilepsy um you need to really think about it as a drug um and it's probably effective for about fifty percent of patients now you always get people who don't respond at all and people who are super responders with everything, but most people are obviously go- are going to fit somewhere in the, in the, in the middle of their of that distribution curve
1: and anecdotally do you is there no difference or do you find it's more effective in generalised epilepsy or focal
0: so so it's got evidence in in both Uh, i i guess um if you're when you're considering surgery if somebody's got focal epilepsy you're uh, and that's the reason not to you're going to want to look at the possibility of receptor surgery first before you then go to do a vns um because you want to give them the best chance of of freedom um some people obviously don't want to have surgery for a number of reasons and so vns at least is is not that invasive in that else. way yeah, yeah. and i think um i think the, the other key thing is with vns is because it's about disrupting the synchronicity your it, it takes time so it's not that you have it put in and um and then suddenly you know you wake up a week later you're, you've got 50 percent reduction in the seizures it, it takes you know up to two years
1: almost sort of re-educating the brain and how it should exactly yeah, yeah. it's a really nice way of describing it thank you i shall use that
0: <laughs> i thought of it in the car on my way down how would i describe <laughs> what, what vns does
1: i really i really like the way that you know you would you would communicate that with patients because i think being able to communicate something well and memorably to patients is important which segues rather neatly into quite a difficult part of communicating with patients and that's that's SUDEP or sudden unexpected death in epilepsy Um, and we all talk about about this with patients with varying responses Mm -hmm. how it's obviously gonna be different with everyone you speak to but what are your experiences of talking to people about SUDEP and how do you go about it
0: Mm -hmm. I mean it 's a good question, and it 's a very I mean, it 's the elephant in the room as a, as a clinician that you feel when you 're speaking to a patient um, it 's always you know if, if some, some some people will know about it because they 'll have googled or they will have, have you know, first or second hand experience of of knowing somebody but i think I think all clinicians feel it 's very challenging because there are are innate risk factors in the patient that you can't modify and therefore you could have a conversation that comes across as there's a thing called SUDEP and this um, is going to be you and this, and these are your risk factors and you can't do anything about some of the risk factors. So for example, being male, being younger, um, having nocturnal seizures, having generalized tonic, chronic seizures, having drug resistant epilepsy these are all risk factors you can't actually do anything about <clears throat> um it, i suppose the, the the way that i will phrase it to patients is to try, and to try and empower them and give them some control of their illness is that there's you know there's this thing called sudap that you can die from seizures and what you can do to reduce the chance of that happening is take medication and you know, I'm not here to, if you don't want to take medication, you know, I, I'm not here, I'm not obviously going to force them to take it, but these are the risks if you decide not to, or if your compliance if compliance is, is an issue and there's things that we can do, if you have an open and honest conversation with the patient, there's things that we can do together to actually look at, oh, you're not, you're, not, you're only taking your lebotriacin once a day. Well, why don't we look to give you something that has a longer half life that you could take once a day, or you take your demotriacin once a day, it's not ideal, but we will give you a higher dose once a day rather than you being prescribed a BD dose, but you're only taking it 50% of the time. So I think it's, I think it's really, and I, I think it's trying to give the patients some a feeling that they have some control over it, um, and that they engage with with your with your service, but not and um, engage with their appointments. Um, unfortunately, the the very highest risk people are often the ones who don't engage. Um, you know, people with, um, drug and alcohol addiction, people with me- other, with comorbid mental health problems. Um, and they tend to tend as well to be younger patients and, um, and so it's trying to, what we're, what we're actually trying to look to do in Newcastle is trying to try to work with other services where they may present to. So obviously A&E, paramedics, um, drug, drug and alcohol services, maternity services, we're trying to look to put together some sort of education package to actually allow the clinicians who they do come into contact with at least try and de-risk mm. what is a high risk situation
1: and i think the thing that i've always struggled with is generally the people who you can talk to about this are the people you would be concerned about less obviously never exactly seen ever, yeah exactly. but you know you're you're sort of young well-educated woman who takes care of her health and is very careful and has phone reminders to take her hemotrigine exactly. yeah statistically she's much less likely yeah. to be the victim of SUDEP or i don't know victims are good yeah. to have SUDEP yeah. but you know your when your patient who's dna for the uh, did not attend for the fourth mm-hmm. time with a diagnosis of epilepsy in the gp is trying again and again to get them to engage with services and you're saying you're coming off your phone appointment coming off you this mm-hmm. and those are the people and you know sending them a sort of cold letter saying please come to your appointment because you could die yeah it's just and it's really difficult to know how to go about that, isn't yeah.
0: it? yeah yeah i mean and i think um i i listened to a talk once by a glaswegian epileptologist who um was saying who'd look at some data about the risk of the i can't quite remember the exact figures but the risk of you dying if you have epilepsy and drug or alcohol addiction is by far in excess of um of the, the of the individual risk of the epilepsy of a drug and alcohol problem and for that reason they see although they're they actually the patient they they don't discharge those patients if they've dnaed once or and they they will offer them first seizure appointments whereas some places you know, we'll say well, it's an alcohol withdrawal seizure or it's due to intoxication or it's due to it provoke seizure due to drugs whereas actually they when you actually look at the, the these probably are the people that you mm. you do need to try and see and i suppose it, in in um in, in drug services for example for, for opiate dependence um the use of methadone is is a is a it's trying to do risk a situation because the risk of somebody dying from an overdose if they're on methadone is lower than if they went on anything they went cold turkey and then took took, took the uh, diamorphine so again it, it, you are slightly changing your concept from trying to treat somebody to the very best of your of medical knowledge to actually trying to de-risk a mm. high risk situation
1: and you do you do wonder as well isn't it? because gps have so much on their plates and they have so many responsibilities and When a patient just when you can't get a patient to engage with a service, you know, do you how do you relay these things to patients? Mm. But putting that responsibility onto already extremely stretched GPs, it becomes it's hard, isn't it? I guess there's no easy answer. Mm.
0: I think that's why we need to engage the other health other um, uh, parts of the health service, like the drug drug and alcohol service, um, Mm -hmm. or or A and E and paramedics to you know obviously not expecting them to do a you know an in-depth conversation but to even flagging it up to the patient because sometimes patient you know the, the patient will have a very chaotic lifestyle and you know if you're if you're being told this every time you come into a&e you know you're at risk of dying yeah you know, for some people obviously not going to get through everybody, but for some people it they might, you know, they might, if it's 1%, they might remember that. And then yeah.
1: you could, you could potentially make a difference in that way. It's just one person, isn't it? That's, if you can succeed with one yeah. person. So going from, going from that to slightly more gentle consideration, which I, I often have a few times actually in clinic kind of recently. So, in in my subspecialty, which is movement disorder, but increasingly people with complex symptoms, particularly multimorbidity, I'm I see a lot of patients who are on sodium valproate mm-hmm. um, for seizures that may have been diagnosed many many moons ago. And they have some cognitive impairment. And that may be because they have some Parkinsonism, which may be <laughs> related to, <laughs> related the to their valproate. Or um, so quite often people with Alzheimer's and seizures are on valproate as well. And there's often a lot of debate about should we leave somebody on sodium valproate or should we make a transition? Um, and quite often the patients who, who may actually be quite Parkinsonian, probably due to their valproate, reluctant yeah. to change because they've they may have experienced terrible epilepsy terrible mm-hmm. seizures in the past and the valproate's allowed them seizure freedom what's your approach to patients who've been on who are on a, a very old drug or or on valproate which may be causing some cognitive side mm-hmm. effects a mm-hmm. lot of people um might be on i don't know phenobarb or mm-hmm. and have been on it for yonks
0: yeah, so I mean, gen- generally, if some if somebody's on, say, phenobarbital or phenytoin, um, say they're in their late seventies or early seventies, they've been on it for five decades, they've had the a seizure for three decades, I would, you know, I'd probably have a discussion with them. Do they, you know, do they need to be on it? You know, they might not even need to be on it any longer. Generally, a lot of people are do not want to do not want to even contemplate coming off it and i suppose for something like phenytonin fever phenobarbital um you know, some of the risks that you would be concerned about in a younger person for example osteoporosis interactions with other, other long-term interactions with other drugs um but particularly the osteoporosis aspect is probably less relevant when you know and, and, and something that you could you can you can you can you can do something about potentially by looking at the bone health into a DEXA scan, for example. So generally, um, for a lot, for most of the patients, I wouldn't wouldn't bring them off it or switch to an alternative drug. Um, and, And they're usually very unkeen to.
1: I suppose they're the success story. They've been blind well, yes. for fifty yes. years, and, and they're and like,
0: "Well, why would you change something which has been I've been I've been absolutely fine with?" It's a different scenario, I think, if you're if you think they're getting side effects from it. So, if you, for example, with the as you gave the example of the Valparate, you know, if they, they're clearly parkinsonian and they're now falling over because they've got a parkinsonian syndrome,
1: and still desperate for me not to touch them. Yeah, I would definitely,
0: <laughs> you know, say, "Well, you, yeah," and, and it's a, it's, I think it's a choice, you know, that if they accept. If if they if they feel that that's something that they want to accept, then that's mm. you know that's like I guess their decision if they've got a capacity to make that decision. Um, so I think it's it depends if they if they're completely stable. I think a lot of patients just won't want to won't want to change. Um, sometimes say some say it's some like carbamazepine, that one of another enzyme inducer. Then you would think you might want to try and rationalise medication, try and get them onto something that's less in, has less interactions which I think is a very reasonable thing to consider. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of people when they have been on those drugs for such a long time that they sort of, they see it as a no brainer as to why would you switch hmm. if you're not getting problems from it.
1: Yeah. Um, I think I've, I've observed particularly, with uh, some of us have been doing more general medicine recently. Um, <laughs> cause this is COVID era. Oh yeah. Yeah. If this podcast is ever listened to in 50 years time. Yes. <laughs> Um, this this was pre virtual reality before the <laughs> chicks in the head. Um, I've, I've I came across a lot of patients with you know fairly advanced cognitive problems who we weren't Parkinsonian, had cognitive problems mm. on on Valproate for an historical diagnosis of of epilepsy, and I suppose the consideration there is if someone's admitted for for another problem, should you get them off that Valproate and been on it for so long, mm. you know, and is their cognition because of that yeah Uh, and during the period when we did more general medicine it wasn't really the most pressing matter but um but yeah I think I think it's increasingly we're going to see this and I think you know our trainees there there may be another emerging subspecialty of of neurology for care of the elderly or care of the elderly liaison and I think a lot of the drugs we're using, such as multiple sclerosis, you know, we're going to be seeing what happens when people have been on them for fifty yeah, years. Yeah, yeah, no,
0: absolutely. Yeah, because we don't have long-term data for, you know, levetiracetam and the machine yeah. We we think that levetiracetam is the best thing since
1: life spread but we don't know actually. We didn't uh, know it would give you a tail. <laughs> Pharma companies don't write them. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I think that's um, the neurology of the future is neurology in, in the older person. Yeah, yeah, and I think that would be very, very interesting. An idea for a future podcast.
0: I do concur, Dr. Whipplin.
1: <laughs> it's been a fabulous hour. So thank you so much. It's been really, really educational for me. I'm sure by extension educational for everyone else. This is this is my hidden agenda. It's just <laughs> to, to get educated, really. Um, as you know, we always end all of our podcasts asking, what advice would you give your younger self, either a first year trainee doctor about to go into medical school? What wisdom would you give? Ella then, to make her life just a little bit easier?
0: So the wisdom I would give to 18, 20-year-old Ella, which was only about five years ago, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I would be...
1: That was not a snort of derision,
0: (laughs) dear listener. Sadly, I'm not 25 any longer. Um, I I would say to not be afraid to say that you don't know and to... Because I as I become more senior, I realise you become more comfortable with knowing what what you know and what you don't know. And if I in a way I wish I'd been a bit more comfortable with that at an earlier stage, rather than always having to always feeling inferior to colleagues and feeling my knowledge I need to do more work and read more. Um, because it's infinite the amount of information. I mean now, you know, you can go on YouTube and you can spend hours and it's the same really with medicine, you could spend mm lifetime reading about something you still can't get away from the that it's the practice of it that is what makes you a doctor
1: And that's why it's called practice
0: that is why it's called practice
1: oh thank you so much no, thank, thank you, you so much i've really enjoyed it
0: no thank you for asking me to come on <laughs> was...
1: and thank you for listening and goodbye Thank you for joining us today on teasneuro.org. This and many other of our podcasts can be found on Podbean or wherever you get your podcasts. They can also be found on teasneuro.org together with a wealth of other neurology resources. Please join us next time.